0: I told uh, the kids at Kirkfree Kids on Wednesday night. I I quoted them from the Book of Daniel, which we've been in, that it is He, God, who changes the times and the seasons. Right? He sets up kings and He removes kings. I just didn't realize that He was going to change the seasons in the matter of a two days. And then yesterday, a Bible study, we're sitting down there, and Chuck says, you know, it's going to be 83 degrees next Friday. And we're all like, oh, what? Really? That's great. He goes, yeah, because I'm going to be in Arizona. (laughs) Yeah. Reminder, yeah, we're not moving that way. We're moving the other way, folks. But it's not just the weather that God changes, is it? Not just those kind of seasons. One moment you're recovering from a severe heart attack, and the next moment you're in eternity. And it always seems to take us by surprise. Um, I know there's many of you today who uh, know through relation or just kindred spirits with our sister Lily uh, but I also know that you're comforted by the fact that she knew Jesus. And she's not on some long journey in order to get to Him. She was immediately with Him the moment she breathed her last. But we'll be praying for you and the family uh, this week. It's, it's a loss. And a loss for our church. Well, would you pray with me? And... Uh, We'll turn in the book of Daniel together. Lord, a pastor reminded me just a moment, a day ago, that life is war. And until we get that, we don't get what prayer is. God, there's foes who are up against us. And I need your shield. I need your help. I need that breastplate on me. And I need a weapon. But you've supplied it for me. You've given it to us. God, are we putting it on? Are we preparing ourselves? So we're looking to you this morning, the captain, to be near to us. And I pray, oh God, that your word would speak afresh into our lives. Oh, convict us, God, and raise us up To be your people for this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Turning to my Bibles to Daniel chapter three. Daniel chapter three. Would you stand with me as we read? Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever! They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That's as far as we're going to get today. You can have a seat. Have you ever discovered to your dismay that a table at your favorite restaurant is going to take more than an hour or more to become available? And you're thinking, man, if I had only acted on the thought of reserving that table in the afternoon when it came to my mind, I wouldn't be in this predicament. How important is it to be making a reservation? Well, you say, for a restaurant, we might be willing to risk it, right? I mean, maybe we can just hope we can get there before the evening rush or after it. And, you know, depending on the day, maybe it's not an issue at all. But let me ask you this. Would you do the same thing for a hotel? Would you just show up in a city that you don't know with your family behind you at 7 o'clock in the evening asking for an available room? Or what if the reply came, well, I'm sorry, we're all booked. Would that little oversight bother your spouse at all? (laughs) Nothing like driving around a strange place after dark, hoping that the next hotel isn't just available, but it's clean, right? It's affordable, safe. So making reservations, I think in some cases, matters a great deal, doesn't it? I mean, you would do the same with your travel arrangements. You don't show up to the airport expecting to catch the flight that day. To be reserved means that that space, that ticket, that seat, or that table has been kept exclusively, right, for you. It's reserved. It's been set aside. No one else has a right to put a claim on it, right? So if you show up at a hotel room that you've reserved and it's being occupied by others, that's a problem, right? It's been exclusively reserved for you, and that business has failed to honor your reservation. Now, with that in mind, here's a synopsis. I just want to keep that. Here's a synopsis of what we're going to be looking at in a little more depth here, okay? Nebuchadnezzar was after something, okay? But as it happened, three somebodies, okay, These three guys stood in the way of him having what he was after. Because what they had was reserved. It was not for him. And not even a part of it would they allow him to take. Because for them, it's all or nothing. So it would not be shared lest they dishonor the one who had the rightful claim. So what was it? What was this reservation that was worth killing or being killed over? There's two segments in this portion of Scripture that we're going to look at. And the first one is what Nebuchadnezzar was after. What was he after? Okay. Now, maybe you're thinking, you know, we just read this, so I got an idea about it. But the action of the king seemed bizarrely out of place. Right? Because let's just go back a minute to the end of chapter 2. We didn't touch on this much last week, but the end of chapter 2. Okay, look at the king's expression in verse 47. Same guy, right? The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you have been able to reveal this mystery. That's quite an ovation for God, is it not? You're God of gods. You're the Lord of kings. And you might read that and easily think, wow, Nebuchadnezzar has made a true confession of God. He must be truly converted, right? And then you get to chapter 3, and you just kind of have to throw that whole window right out, right? That whole view is gone. I mean, his heart in chapter 3 seems harder than it was in chapter 2. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar is what happens to a lot of people. Okay? They experience a religious conviction without it leading to a spiritual conversion. Okay? They hit a roadblock, okay? they hit an unexpected storm from God, but rather than turning it, causing them to turn back, okay, hey, you know what? This track of life that I'm on is leading towards death, this track of life is destruction. But instead of doing that, they sidestep it, right? And they just get right on back on track to where they were going. Just a temporary setback. Nothing, nothing has really changed. So what I'm saying is, let's not jump the gun when one person shows a little enthusiasm about Jesus Christ. Because it won't take long for that person's priorities to really be exposed. And what initially may have excited you... May shock you into disillusionment a week, a month, or even a year later. The reality is, the more you're exposed to the truth and continue to reject it, the harder your heart becomes. So keep praying. Continue to pray for people you know like this man, okay? For an awakening of one's personal need for Christ. Now, we can already sense the superficiality here, though, right, in chapter 2. Did you notice? That when Nebuchadnezzar responds to this dream being revealed, that it's all directed towards Daniel? You see that? You think he ought to respond to be who? God, right? But but look at this, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to who? Daniel. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to who? To Daniel? Oh. Oh. That's not how you do it. That's not someone who's truly converted. You don't give homage and worship and incense and offer up to a man, right? All his reverence is directed towards Daniel. It's all human-centered, something superficial. And all our suspicions are confirmed a few verses later. I think if you were in Daniel's shoes, it would have been obvious. But we're not there. We're reading it, right? And that's why it didn't perplex them in what happened next, Okay. They knew King Nebuchadnezzar had not yet changed. He was still the same king, and he was still after the same thing. Remember now, okay, that what happens in chapter 3 follows after chapter 2. You know, we often dis, we often misread Daniel. You know why? Because we isolate these stories and we just read one chapter of it. But there's sequence here, okay? because now we're going to ask how is Nebuchadnezzar going to react to the dream that's been revealed to him a dream which basically summed up his vast glorious empire as really a relatively tiny king right you're just the head you're just the head of this man and despite the quality of being gold when all is said and done even that it's just going to be dust in the wind you're going to evaporate like everything else that's your kingdom So what does he do? That's a very humbling dream. Does he stop sinning? Does he use his wealth to help the poor and the oppressed? Well, here's his reaction in chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Same word of chapter 2. Statue. Whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. Hmm. He decides to make a statue. Well, I wonder where he got that idea from. Maybe from a dream he had, Huh? Yeah. And it's a colossal statue, right? By those measurements, it's 90 feet tall. It's 9 feet wide. It's probably on a large pedestal. But it's, in size, it's just like his dream. But he modifies it a bit, doesn't he, right? Yeah, it's not just a head of gold. It's completely of gold. The whole thing is gold. And there's an overtone of defiance here, right? Oh, yeah, the God of Daniel may have said one thing, right? but my legacy, it's going to be lasting, okay? My glory is going to continue. There's not going to be an after this with my kingdom. And so he makes the whole thing out of gold. And then the text says that he set it up, right? Now, did you catch as we were reading it how many times it says that he set it up? In this chapter alone, nine times it says, Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. By the way, that word to set up, it's the same verb used in Daniel chapter 2, verse 21. Look back there for a second. See this? Daniel's worshiping. He says, He, God, changes times and seasons. He removes kings and does what? Sets up kings. Who sets up kings? God does. But here, in chapter 3, it is overtly stressed that Nebuchadnezzar sees himself as the one who is able to set up gods for the people. It's defiant. Now, we don't know if the statue represented Nebuchadnezzar himself or one of the gods of Babylon, probably the latter. But regardless, what everyone knew, what was clear was this. I've set it up because I have the power to do so. And if anything else, did you notice the location? That only reinforced his defiance, right? Where is it located? In the plain of Dura. Well, we don't know specifically where that's at today. But the mention of the plain okay, would have caused readers to go back to the, one of the most defiant moments in human history, which was what? The building of the Tower of Babel, which was located on the plain of Shinar, which is just an ancient word for Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar's intentions are already starting to crystallize, aren't they? Okay, What he's up to has nothing to do with magnifying the God of heaven. So keep reading. Verse 2, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Daniel mentions several classes of government, right? Seven altogether, okay? And he sends them out. He sends out this invitation to come and be gathered for a dedication service. And by the way, this was not an RSVP, okay? You're required to come. Now, here's something very interesting, okay? In, a, in an archaeological find... Um, a clay prism, and here's an ex- this isn't the one I'm talking about, but this is an example, okay? This is from a Babylonian era. It looks something like this. was found, okay? And it is believed to be a memento or a record of those in attendance at an unspecified ceremony during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Okay? Now, over 50 names are listed in five different classes of officials on this clay cylinder. Now, one name on this, on that prism is familiar. Okay? Oh. oh, I didn't put it on there. It's Nebuzaradan. Now, oh yeah, I do have it here. I forgot. Nebuzaradan. Have you heard that before? Look at this. Okay? 2 Kings 25.8. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan... The captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. So this guy is Nebuchadnezzar's bodyguard, captain. He's the one who burns Jerusalem. Now the scholar, so there's one instance where you see archaeology confirming biblical history. The scholar who examined that clay prism believes that the ceremony on that scroll, on that clay pot, describes the dedication In Daniel chapter 3, and he makes a very interesting case for it. Three names in particular on that scroll stand out. I'll just show them to you. Look at this. Hananu, Ardinabu, and Mushalim. And he says, and he makes a pretty good case for it, that maybe these are Hananiah, Shadrach, Abednego, and Meshach. And what's also interesting is that missing from that scroll is any name resembling Daniel or Belshazzar. Now, we don't know why Daniel was not summoned to this dedication, but the Bible affirms he was not there, because otherwise there would have been four men thrown into that furnace. The best indicator we have, and really the only thing we have to go by, is at the end of chapter 2. Right? Look at this. Verse 49, Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where? Over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Okay, But Daniel remained at the king's court. So the three friends are appointed over the affairs of the province, right? They're over the province of Babylon. They probably were representatives of the Jewish captives okay, for the state. Daniel, however, was no longer with them. He's not with these guys anymore, as is evident by the contrast of word, right? But Daniel, these guys went out, but Daniel remained where? at the king's court. He's in the city proper of Babylon. The events of chapter 3 take place in the plain, and clearly they involve vassals over the conquered peoples. Now here's something else. History also tells us that in 594 BC, this is five or six years after Daniel chapter 2, there was a revolt in Babylon itself. And King Nebuchadnezzar actually captured the leader of that rebellion with his own hand, And then he went out to collect tribute from all his vassals. And this may have been the occasion and the stimulus for this statue, right? He's reaffirming that his subjects were going to be utterly loyal to him. In other words, don't even think about rebelling. See what happened the last time, right? So all these officials are gathered together, and now they're standing, right, before this colossal statue. And a herald stands up. Preacher, and he issues this proclamation in verse 4. You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, you're thinking, bagpipe? When the Scots there? Actually, that word in its earlier usage probably meant sounding together, like a harmonious concord of sound, Okay. It could also be translated bagpipe. And every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So, okay then, all right. So this isn't just a um, a dedication to admire some artistry, is it? No. This is a worship service. Now, it may have been politically motivated, right? I'm going to make sure your allegiance is with me. But the bottom line is, this was clearly religious. You can worship any god you want, as long as your god is second to the state. Right? And everybody knew who was in attendance that what this statue was really about, whether or not it represented one of their gods. What it really was about was the man who set it up. And by the way, it's nothing new in history. Did you get this? In the 1960s, okay, Not that long ago, the president of Ghana made a life-size statue of himself because he could tolerate no disunity in his nation. On the bottom of his statue, this is what it read. Seek ye first the political kingdom, and all other things shall be added unto you. Now, does that sound political or religious? Sounded pretty religious to the people of Ghana. Well, some of our members attended a worship conference yesterday, and I heard a little bit about it. So I'm going to give us all a little follow-up session, because we couldn't all go to that, right, um, about a worship service, okay? And, and in this case, a worship service which is horribly off-base, okay? So firstly, and I'm going to quote here something, because it was a very well-spoken word, okay? A few lessons from a worship service. Number one, whenever much is made of a person... Less is made of the Lord. Whenever listen, it doesn't take a totalitarian government to plan blasphemy. You realize that blasphemy can just as well occur naturally at any given church when naturally driven people direct more attention to themselves than to God, the whom they've gathered to worship. I'm telling you something. It takes conscious prayerful effort to magnify god over oneself that's the natural thing make it much of me and then to maintain that stance but secondly did you notice the impressive array of orchestra it's hard to miss right all these instruments daniel makes a point to highlight the. you know what this is saying it's just how grand it all is man what a sight to see right In other words, it's making worship really easy, really easy for these guys in attendance. Now listen, though. The aesthetics of worship are never the main thing. That's never the focus of Scripture. It's never about how impressive the music or the atmosphere is or that you have to have all these mood-setting extravagances for worship. No, what that is... What the agenda in that is, is to induce worship out of you. So the statement, you know what, well, well, how I like to worship is blah, blah, blah. I like to have drums and lights. and, Really, that's, that's what you're saying is, I'm led by how I feel, not by what is true. So secondly, what matters is not the aesthetics of worship, the music, the grandeur, what matters is the object of worship. Turn to the New Testament for a minute. The book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 8. Now look at this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Whoa. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written... You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Do you see a connection between what Satan showed him, right? Visually appealing to the Lord, right? With the intention of inducing His worship. But Jesus was not led by His eyes or by His ears, but by what? The truth. And that's the question, right? Do you worship according to Revelation? That is what God has clearly commanded and communicated, or do you worship according to your disposition? I'll tell you what, well, the scene here in Daniel chapter three has got everything. It's got the grandeur of it all, and if the aesthetics were not convincing enough for the crowd that's gathered to just fall on their knees and worship, like, well, well, Nebuchadnezzar did have a backup plan. Okay, you might call it fire insurance. Right? Verse 6. Verse 6 says, And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Okay. Oh, you're not impressed with my music? Oh, okay. Well, what do you think of my grill? You like it? I keep mine at 900 to 1,000 degrees Celsius. And if you're not, you know, you're not inclined to the music, well, I'll give you a little personal tour. Okay? This was probably where he molded that golden image, but it wasn't an uncommon thing to execute people that way. In fact, Jeremiah says that Nebuchadnezzar at one time roasted two false prophets from among the exiles. Now, let me just pause for a minute. Consider what's happening, right? Consider what's just been said, what all those in attendance are required to do. And let me just ask you this. Do you have to have religious freedom to worship God? What if the U.S. takes away your right to worship? What if in retaliation they take your job or your property Your children, are you going to start changing your tune? Or are you going to say, well, you know what, I believe it in my heart, and that's really all that matters, so even though outwardly I'm bowing down. You realize that's a deceitful rationalization. That's not glorifying God, that's saving your rear end. And Jesus said, those who deny me, listen, before men, that's outwardly, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. The encroachment of the government is nothing new. And it is happening, even here. And it ought to not, well, maybe it does come as a shock, but do you realize that most of church history, most of it, since the time the church has been founded, believers have had to constantly choose between God and Caesar. And who are you going to bow down to? You don't have to have your freedoms to be faithful. Most of our brethren in eternity never did. In fact, the prayers of the early church were never about, Oh Lord, please exempt us from persecution. They never prayed that. They prayed, Lord, make us bold in our stand for Christ. And make us bold for whatever comes as a result of it. Well, between the beauty of this event and the threat The text says in verse 7 that all the peoples bowed down to the image when the music sounded. And we're left wondering, well, what's become of our Hebrew officials, right? Did they also bow? So we move into a second segment, right, which is this, what Nebuchadnezzar couldn't have. Do you realize that Scripture doesn't actually document their refusal to worship? It doesn't say it like that. And that's the thing about God's servants. You see, they don't make a scene about their actions. They're just they not looking for attention. In fact, we don't even hear them speak until we get to verse 16. We only find out about it because a group of God-haters has already been ready to tear them into pieces the first chance they get. Right? Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously Accuse the Jews, those words maliciously accused are actually a light rendering for, eat the pieces of. In other words, they got their teeth into these guys. Their agenda was to rid any influence of the kingdom of God whatsoever in Babylon. And as native Chaldeans, right, meaning they're from Babylon, they probably couldn't stand it. They're probably filled with envy that King Nebuchadnezzar had appointed these three Jews into such high positions because they mention that in verse 12, right? Oh, yeah, King, remember these guys whom you appointed over the affairs? Well, guess what? They're not doing what you said, right? And they knew, right? They knew how to push the king's buttons. All they had to do was say, hey, these guys don't regard you. They're not giving you what you deserve. And that just threw the king into a rage, right? Obviously, another telltale sign that nothing's changed with him. So they're brought before the king right, for questioning. He basically says to them, you know what, we're going to pretend uh, this didn't happen. And we'll just do a little redo, okay? So when the instruments play, you bow. And we can just carry on. And if not, well, you're fired. And he meant it. Back in that day, when you are fired, you were fired. And look at the end of verse 15. Look at this. Listen to what he says. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, get this. The reply was immediate. We don't have any hesitation among these three guys, these three men. In other words, they're saying, it's all right. We don't need to try this again. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, Differently than the others did, right? Because they call him by what? His name. Right? Here's the reality. You may think you're so exalted that you have the power over life, but guess what, Nebuchadnezzar? You're just a man. You were born and named like anyone else. And in response to your question, who is the God who will deliver us? Well, the God whom we serve. He is able and He will deliver us out of your hand, okay? We get the sense of expectation, right? But did you notice this then? Did you notice this in verse 18? But if not... This is not a... But if our God is not able... No, but rather this. But if our sovereign God, who does whatever He wills, chooses not to... Right? Right? But if He decides not to save us, and that's different, right? That's different. You see, these three men didn't presume that God had to do their bidding. You see, that would, God, that would make God nothing more than their servant. Predictable, right? It just does whatever we tell Him to do. No. God could save them, but that didn't mean He had to. And sometimes, right? Sometimes, God says no. Like in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? Jesus is on his knees and he's praying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless. Right? But if not. That's what he's saying. Nevertheless. But if not. Not as I will, but as you will. You realize that God said no. To his son. Because it was his will. Not that he couldn't do it. Oh yeah, God could have removed the cup. But his will was to save sinners. And that meant that there was no other way than for Jesus to endure the furnace of the cross. And in so doing, get this. God did on the cross through Jesus Christ what Nebuchadnezzar could never do, which was this, uniting a people from every tribe, nation, and language in worship. He couldn't do it, but God alone did it through Jesus Christ. It's called the church. And God is still inviting every man and every woman and every child to give God the exclusive right of their hearts that no one else deserves. Listen, the point of the story is not that God is a gamble, right? Oh, maybe God will save us and maybe He won't. No, God will bring His his own who trust in Him into His eternal home. But His will for you here may mean suffering, right? Temporary suffering, temporary pain, temporary setback. Did you notice the emphasis on temporary no, the point is not ascertaining what God's going to do in your case. That's up to Him. It's this. It's how both Jesus and Daniel's three friends stood on their resolve in the face of those temporary losses and said this. Whatever the outcome, God and God alone has the exclusive adoration of my heart. In other words, they're saying this. This heart's reserved. You can't have that. Can I read something for you? This was written by a young African pastor. He said this I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed, I have Holy Spirit power. My die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by patience, am uplifted by prayer, and labor by power. My face is set. My gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough. My companions are few, my guide is reliable, and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of the adversary, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till He comes, give till I drop, preach till all I know, and work till He stops me. And when He comes for His own, He'll have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. They found that in a study after he had been martyred <clears throat> there's a whole world out there that wants what only god deserves jonathan edwards had written he'd written down his life resolutions and he always kept them before him here's what they were you see this resolution number 1 i will live for god resolution 2 even if no one else does, I still will. Is your heart reserved? Make it clear today. Are your colors clear? Let's pray. Lord, Today we need men and women of resolve. You may not call us to face a burning furnace, but we have our own trouble. We have our own pressure. And the world is constantly encroaching upon what is most dear to us, trying to usurp what you alone have a right to. Oh God. Help us to be vigilant, to guard our heart. Fill us with courage. Give us strength. You are God. You will see us through, just as you did these men. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.